0: Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by we are One Composites and Freewheel.co.uk. As you'll know, I've been running we are One Composites wheels for about three years now and I'm a massive fan. Dustin and his crew are doing the hard work out there in Kamloops in Canada to make sure that every single product that leaves their factory is top quality and that work really shows. The finish of the wheels is incredible and is way beyond that of a lot of carbon wheels out there. The ride quality is incredible, striking a perfect balance between stiffness and compliance to ensure that they track well and hold a line, but don't ping off every root and rock. The result is a ride that is super accurate and inspires confidence. I'm currently using the Faction wheels on my 160mm travel bike and they have been completely flawless. We are one have been so popular that the demand for their products is insane, and their wheel building is totally slammed. That means we can't offer a discount on complete wheels this month. But We are one really want to support our listeners, so they're offering fifteen percent off if you're buying their Rimoni products until the end of April. So head to weareonecomposites.com now and use the code We Supply twenty twenty one. That's We Supply, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number twenty twenty one over at weareonecomposites.com now. Freewheel.co.uk is a new cycling website that enables you to shop for a ton of your favourite cycling brands online, but with all sales supporting your chosen local bike shop, meaning that small businesses who, let's face it, need our support right now, get a percentage kickback from every sale. In an age where huge online retailers dominate the market, Freewheel is here to support over 400 local bike shops that make up the Freewheel union. And I have to say, our local bike shops are super important parts of our riding communities. So, you get the convenience of ordering online, but you still get to support your local bike shop. Head to freewheel.co.uk now and sign up to their mailing list to get a generous 15% off your first order. This is a UK-only thing, I'm afraid, so apologies to my listeners elsewhere in the world. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode on DowntimePodcast.com. On Friday, I launched my Spring-Summer 2021 range of merch, and it's now available over at DowntimePodcast.com forward slash shop. As always, it's top quality, organic, made in a factory using renewable energy and delivered with no single-use plastics. But this time we've got two brand new designs and also our first ever recycled T-shirts. Head over now and check them out. All the proceeds go to helping improve the podcast. If you want to get the podcast as soon as every new episode drops, then make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably a button there that says follow or subscribe, so please hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it's available. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe, where I've got links to all the major platforms to help you. It'd also be great if you can give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook, where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's the best place to keep up to date with what's going on, and it's always great to chat with you in the comments there. All right, it's time for this week's episode. If you cut Craig's stickman glass belt, then he'd bleed downhill racing. He's been there from the very start with an early race career inspired by none other than John Tomac. Through his time as a World Cup mechanic, journalist, photographer and presenter, all the way to his role today as Global Brand Director for Bike with Troiler Designs. We chat about his history with downhill racing and hear how things have changed over the years. How are brands thinking about marketing today? How is that impacting the races? And how have expectations changed? And what does that mean for the future of the sport? I found it really interesting chatting with someone who's been so deeply involved in the sport for so long, and I hope you enjoy it too. So without further ado, here's Craig Stickman Glassbell. Craig Glassbell, also known as Stickman. Welcome to the Downtime
1: Podcast. How's things with you? I'm well. It's great to be here. I'm stoked to an uh, avid listener of the show. So it's I'm glad to be here with you and appreciate your time.
0: Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's always strange when I reach out to anyone in the mountain bike world who's like excited to come on the show because they're a fan. Like I never I never made the podcast for the industry or for the riders. I made it for fans like me. So yeah, yeah it's always cool when I hear that, that you
1: guys enjoy it as well. So
0: that's awesome. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I mean, a huge roster of, of uh, guests you've had when, you know, I can't say I listen to every single episode cause I am a podcast geek and listen to a lot of <laughs> podcasts. And so I miss, you know, miss a few episodes of all my favorites. And when I was going back, I was like, I was blown away at, at a, the amount of, uh, episodes I've missed of yours and just like, there, you have so many people on here now. That's awesome. Yeah. It's mad said, that's yeah. Grown and, and blown up like that. So
0: for sure. It was super hard initially, like getting guests was the hardest bit and that's definitely changed. So it's been, yeah, it's been really nice that people kind of want to come on or are almost excited to come on now. So yeah, yeah absolutely. it's a big change. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your history with mountain bikes then. And um, tell us a little bit about kind of how you discovered the sport and how you got into it.
1: Um, I think, I don't know if it's like most people, but when I was a teenager, you know, um, I wasn't entirely into school and the school, especially the school sports in America anyways, you know, ball sports, football, baseball. Um, I went to high school at the beach. So we at least had a surfing class. (laughs) and oh, nice. I, I did the surfing class but that was way too gnarly of a regimen to do that dawn patrol get up 4:30 be at the beach at 5 and I, I i don't know i did it for a year and that just wasn't my thing and um i never really was i was into BMX a little bit when i was a kid but not uh-huh. you know, i went to a couple races i had the magazines i was probably a fan from afar but i wasn't a competitor um, I think, and when I did try it, I sucked really bad. So I was like, <laughs> okay, that's not for me. Um, but we had a local shop in my town, Henry Dondo beach, and it was called bicycle center USA. And they were the, you know, they were the, the epicenter of mountain biking in its heyday. Um, you know, they were making some pretty cool custom, uh, granny gears. Like they would take cogs off the, off the free wheels and weld them to the chain rings up front and, you know, putting 18 tooth, 20 tooth, small rings, because where we lived, you know, I say I lived at the beach, but we were close to a place called Palos Verdes. Had a lot of steep climbs. And, you know, that was the, the competition, the friendly competition amongst all the locals was to see how far you could get up these climbs and you can only do it with these, with these special gears that weren't even made yet. So anyway, bicycle center, um, I used to hang out there, shop rat, and I just kept begging for a job and uh, they finally are like, yeah, you can start taking out the trash for us. And, um, you know, that's where my, my, I guess the bike industry roots were, were planted there when I was whatever, 13, 14. Yeah. And, um, like I said, you know, they were at the forefront of mountain biking. They were selling Richie bikes, Fisher bikes. Um, I think I was telling you that I listened to that Gary Fisher episode, which was wild. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I bought a handmade Gary Fisher bike in 80, whatever it was, the late eighties. And that was my, you know, I saved up, fuck, man, probably five, six months of working to save up to buy that frame and custom custom had it custom painted by cycle art, which was the big custom painter. Um, so that was my indoctrination to mountain biking and with a group of guys and girls that were, um, would go on trips to the races and, to, um, cool riding zones that we were discovering. And I just fell in love with mountain biking right, right then and there. And, uh, kind of took over the, um, surfing thing, that's for sure. And then I got into road racing I was racing road bikes and velodrome and just cycling in general. I was exposed to all of it and I really loved it. I love the community, the culture, um, just those relationships that, you know, a lot of them I still have today. And, uh, but yeah, it was a bike shop start, like a lot of people do, especially the tech technical minded people, you know, like I, the, my career in mountain biking was centered around team support and race mechanic, uh-huh. team management. But, you know, you build those fundamentals at the bike shop and, you know, as a mechanic at the shop and selling bikes and dealing with customers making you know parts work on bikes that they're not supposed to work on and problem solving and all that stuff so um it really taught me taught me a lot back then and i and you still see it today um you know working with dealers these younger kids or you know some of the some of the veterans back in the back of the shop were tuning bikes and that love of, of working on bikes and now obviously with with covid it's gnarlier than ever to be a bike shop mechanic but yeah. I mean, that was the roots starting in the bike shop and yeah. then, uh, transferred into the racing in the nineties. Yeah. Um, you, I come- and
0: you were inspired by, uh, John Tomac, I believe, who was also a bit of a hero of mine, but you got a little bit closer to him than I ever did.
1: Yeah, for sure. He, uh, I mean, he was, he was the raddest dude when he, he came on and he came from BMX. So he had more you know style. He was jumping over the jumps with, with style versus, you know, a lot of the XC gods of the time, you know, that were full, um, Lycra clad, just, just robot, they're robotic and, and Johnny T kind of showed you a funner side of it while still just completely attacking the course, um, aggressive on the descents, really aggressive on the climbs. And I wanted to be like him. I mean, he was, he was unreal. So I was you know, a fan from afar and, uh, my neighbor, Charlie Litsky was, um, was his agent. He became his agent early on. And, um, you know, this is before the mountain biking really blew up, but it was at the, the early days when there was, there were some, um, uh, some pretty big financial rewards starting to brew and he had an agent. Charlie was his agent. He was my neighbor. So Johnny T started hanging out over there and, you know, meeting him for the first time just as a starstruck kid i mean he was only i don't know five six years older than me or something but Uh he was already the man like you everybody wanted to be like him and uh yeah and charlie started you know having me travel with him just to help me save money like you know with the rental cars and hotels like yeah johnny said it's cool if you you could stay with him sleep on the floor And, (laughs) and johnny was cool with it and uh So I was just aspiring cross country, you know, back in those days, you did cross country, you did the downhill, you did the uphill, you did it all on the same bike. So you traveled with one bike. Um, You didn't (laughs) bring any spare stuff. You just hoped it all worked. And uh, so, yeah, I got to know him a little bit through that, through that early era. And then I, you know, I quickly discovered I wasn't going to be, you know, of his caliber and that's all I wanted. I wanted to be as badass as he was. And I was so far, (laughs) so far from (laughs) that realm. So, uh, I kind of, I'm like, well, what else can I do? Um, and I started building his bikes, his race bikes back home in Redondo at the shop when he, he rode for Raleigh bikes at the time and they were doing some really unique carbon fiber, um, and titanium lugged, um, just custom made bikes and, and his Tioga disc wheels that we were building back there. And so the early days of building his bikes, um, was super fun you know and i would see him win a race and be like oh my god i built that bike and this is before (laughs) he had his on the road mechanic bob Gregorio, who was a you know became a legend legendary mechanic of that era too but yeah those early days wanting to be like johnny t seeing that that wasn't going to work out but how else can i fit myself into um, this industry and this and this culture because i you know I, i just loved it and um That's how I pivoted into um, you know, doing team mechanics and you know, which, you know, then unfolded into my good friend Dave Cullinan. He was coming from BMX, um, trying out mountain biking and he instantly was really good. Um, there's tons of Cully stories, but you know, I took him up to his first race up in Mammoth and you know, he was the fastest qualifier for the slalom there nobody had ever heard of him unless you were into BMX, you heard of him, but mountain bikers didn't hear of him, but he was fast, the fastest guy. And you just quickly knew this dude was going to be legit. And, um, so I just started being his mechanic. He was kind of the next guy after, you know, the Tomac kind of early days. Um, and then working on Cully's bikes cause he lived, he lived in the same town as me, um, which then gets us to 92. He went, <clears throat> man, I don't know what's going on with my throat. Um, he won. He won the uh, 92 Worlds in Canada downhill worlds, and I was his mechanic for that event. And you know that kind of catapulted his career um, and mine as well. Um, that next year, I, I did a deal with Team Iron Horse to be the team mechanic, and Cully he ended up signing with Diamondback. He was the first first six figure um, downhill rider. So that would be 93. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was that was the moment you know, the sport started taking off and, you know, his career definitely took off. I got my first, you know, full-time mechanic gig. Um, I think iron horse paid me a thousand bucks a month. And I was like, I thought I was a rock star. I hit, <laughs> I hit the big time and, uh, you know, just traveling around on somebody else's dime all over the world at the time, which was mostly, you know, the Norba series back in that day, driving around the country at all the big Norba events Um, And we did a couple European rounds, but not many yet. Still, the World Cup was still, you know, a faraway dream for a lot of the American teams, riders, and support people. Um, But we did a couple that year. Um, But things were just starting. Like, that was the foundation of of things going big time, for sure. Like, like 92, 93 era.
0: Was it was it Cully that jumped between the chairs on the chairlift in Bromont? Is that, am I remembering that right?
1: Yeah, there was a, if I recall, there was a bridge that went over the alpine slide. That's what the bridge was for. And um, the chairlift that went over it, he, in his race run, it's funny, that story, you know, was everybody talked about it in the, in the moment that was there, but we didn't have, you know, media that we have today. Yeah, social websites, whatever. Um, so you had to be there to know about it. I think maybe one of the magazines covered it, but, um, it kind of, it kind of vanished for a bit, but it seems like every five or six years this the legend of Cully jumping that, <laughs> um, that, uh, that bridge comes up. And I think, I think mountain bike action or something just revisited that story. Okay. And, but yeah, you had to time it just right. And it saved a bunch of time to jump. It's basically a big tabletop <clears throat> and he's really the only guy in downhill. You know, people talk about these early free ride, um, you know, forefathers, whoever they are, whether it's a Richie Schley or Shandro, yeah. but before those guys, and there's tons of other guys that are known for that. But before that, I think Cully with his style, his big jumps, um, first to try stuff on bikes that were completely incapable of of doing these things he was doing them and um you know the first guy to do tricks on his downhill bike which you know you'd look at his downhill bike today and be like that's a cross-country bike that's not a downhill bike but you know he was doing no footers and really before anybody else so like i don't know sometimes i try to all these new kids that hey there was this guy before so and so and so and so that was doing <laughs> you know some pretty rad tricks and doing them with style not he wasn't sketchy like yeah he was the most stylish dude but uh so yeah he jumped that jump won the race and that just things people say things change that day but they, they kind of did um because the american bike brands globally, too, but especially in America, we're seeing mountain biking was starting to be something that everybody wanted a piece of, especially mainstream corporate America. Uh, uh-huh. We started getting corporate sponsors coming in, and it was you know I, I say the heyday, but I don't know if that's the right word, but mountain biking was the thing that everybody wanted a piece of and downhill was the, as we all say, you know, the formula One of mountain biking and it's the most exciting part of it. Even back in that day with the dodgy equipment and stuff, it was still um exciting to watch. And that yeah. hasn't changed. I mean it's definitely got more exciting, but um yeah it's been a, it's been a long long road of downhilling.
0: <laughs> yeah. What what do you think was driving that kind of perfect storm around that time then? Because there were so many like car brands, there's Volvo Cannondale stuff. You guys had a car sponsor, I think then as well like how, how was how was that happening because we seem to have gone away from that a bit over the last chunk of years
1: I, 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 I try to overanalyze it, but I think it just comes down to simplicity and that was it was something that mainstream America wanted a part of, and there wasn't you know there wasn't as many distractions as there are now, and those distractions can come by way of media or all the different sports that you have available to you. Um, it was just something, I, I, I don't know. There was just an allure to it. Um, honestly, because what we all love about mountain biking, being outdoors and riding this vehicle anywhere you want on, on your, on your own, um, you know, it's, it's up to you to get you where you want to go. Um, what you can see on a mountain bike, um, you know, the terrain, the challenge, the victory of making it over a, a hill or an obstacle, whatever it is, all those things we love about mountain biking. I think this mainstream America was drawn to it. And especially here in SoCal, you know, we have a lot of these big corporations in Los Angeles and Orange County, uh, whether it be car companies or um, tool companies, DeWalt or Makita, you know, so many of them are down here in the what we call the L.A. Basin. And you know, I mentioned Big Bear earlier before, but Big Bear is our is our local Southern California resort. And mm-hmm. these these executives from these companies could just drive up two hours from L.A. And in that time, you know, go up to these major events and, and watch what's going on. They're, they're hearing about this sport of mountain biking and they were getting excited by it and they would see the amount of people. They'd see, you know, every parking lot was full. Crowds, you know, crowds that rivaled mainstream sport crowds, you know, down in the Coliseum and UCLA games. And and I think they, they just saw... And it was affordable compared to mainstream sports too, to invest in it, um, in comparison, you know, but they would bring these deals to us and it would be, you know, a gold mine of, of cash. (laughs) And so, uh, there was just so much excitement around it. And, you know, this, this, uh, competition amongst these executives would be, uh, oh, if Nissan's getting involved and the Acura guy's got to get involved. Oh, the lady from Hyundai is coming over. She wants to spend <laughs> some money. And It just became a competitive thing. They wanted to outdo each other, especially with car brands. Um, we had a lot of, you know, beer sponsors. Coors Light was, this, was the title sponsor of the Downhill series. Yeah. Um, Visa card, Chevy trucks. So it was just an exciting time for everybody to spend their marketing dollars. and And then there just comes a, there comes a time when all these brands just go, okay, we've had our, whatever that time, time span is, but we did our three years or our five years or our 10 years. And it's time to let's go look at snowboarding or let's go look at skateboarding Mm or, and some of them come back, you know, um, relationships were built. There was a return. um, But I think, you know, that 2001, when we saw things kind of tail off and, and, you know, we lost a lot of sponsorships, which is, you know, I always call it the Lance effect. I mean, everybody's eyes pivoted towards Lance Armstrong and road bikes, and yeah. I think a lot of those sponsors as well, you know, focus their 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 dollars on on road at that time. And mm-hmm. once in a while, we've gotten them back, um, but I think there's just so much noise, right? Like, there's just so much going on. If you're if you're a marketer in the mainstream um corporate america it's uh there's just so, so much to spend your money on and so but we definitely took advantage of it back in back in that day <laughs> for sure
0: yeah there was some big salaries kicking around
1: back then yeah yeah i mean i th- i think your your top especially with the guys i think the top writers today you know it sounds like they're probably surpassing what the top guys back in the day but i i mean knowing what you know my wife lee was making and her peers of the of the mid 90s era mm-hmm. um and these were man three four five hundred thousand hundred thousand dollar deals for the for the women for the top women yeah which were you know the they were in the top five of all downhillers getting paid, not just male or female. Um, So I think the women back then were probably making, you know, more um, and and deeper too. Like, you know, you could be a 15th place rider and I'm not going to say you were making a living, but you're probably getting your stuff paid for maybe making some, some prize money. Mm -hmm. Um, It just seemed like it went a little deeper than it, than it, I think it seems like it's it's getting a little bit better.
0: Um, Do you think that's because the out of industry brands maybe have a little bit more uh, interest in investing in the women's side of things than some of the mountain bike brands? Like, why do you think there was a bit more interest then in the women's side of sport, more
1: investment in that side? Yeah, I don't. I mean, that's probably part of it. You know, those outside sponsorships. Saw saw the saw the value in investing in 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 women's mountain biking mm-hmm. at that time, uh, and not to say they don't now. Um, I just don't know if if that amount of, of those outside sponsorships have come in, and and you know the reason you know, why why is that, um, and even the but even the bike brands too, you know the the marketing managers and marketing directors of that time. It it again, I don't have a spreadsheet of of then versus now of of female leadership positions, but it sure does seem like there was a lot of women in those positions in that era. Uh-huh. Um seemingly more than today, but again, that, that could be just anecdotal, but uh but man, you know, the, the autograph lines for for the women writers seemed longer. Um, the exposure from the magazines, I don't know if I would say it was, was greater, but I mean, I want to say it was at least equal and somebody could probably challenge me on that, but it just seemed like a great time. And I, I feel like, again, I live, I live with somebody, my (laughs) wife for 28 years now. Um, so I've been pretty close to, to seeing that side of it. And, um, so I think I have a pretty good insight to it. It just seems like it's a, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things said today that, um, I think it's just worth knowing for the new riders to know what it was like in the day in the nineties. Um, mm. and it was a seemingly pretty good place for women's mountain biking, especially downhill. Um, yeah. So if we can at least get back to that, you know, it just seems like it was a little more, there was a little more equality back then. And I definitely feel like the sport has gotten better over the last couple years. I think a lot of the the women's downhillers have become more, um, uh, have a stronger voice and people are listening Mm -hmm. to it. So that's all really good. And, um, but yeah, the mid nineties, man, like, Every team had at least one, you know, sometimes two females and, you know, powerful females. Um, that was just part of the roster you built. It, it was just, that's just what you did. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of talk, you know, in the downhill circuit the last couple of years about, you know, why some of these teams don't have any women or only have one yeah. woman. And so I don't know. I like that. We're, we're at least talking about it. And it's a, it's, sure. it's a, it's a, we're not shoving it behind the, under the rug kind of thing. So, yeah, because we definitely, yes. we had great moments back in the day. So let's at least, you know, get back to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that as the budgets kind of got eroded as some of the investment went, it looks like the women's side of the sport suffered worse than the men's side and is, is taking longer to come back. But it, yeah, like you say, there's some positive signs, I guess, that there is more investment in current times in the women's side of the sport, but still a way to go
1: yeah I, I think there's progress is being made, but we're certainly nowhere near um, how it how it should be and in my opinion, so I think many others, but yeah. I think we're moving in the right direction and these topics are coming up, and that's always good you know and even even in a, even in a you know where I work now, troy Lee designs when when I got there, I've been there almost ten years now. When I got there ten years ago, there was a there was one woman on the roster, and you know the at a very 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 low um, financial partnership, and mm-hmm. you know now you know our our I'd say about forty percent of our salaried roster is women. Um, you know I. There are some you take like Elise Willoughby, who's our top BMX woman, mega badass. Um, I like to think she's probably the most well-paid gear, gear deal of men mm-hmm. and women. Um, okay. And it could always be more because she's freaking incredible. Um, and uh, so we have situations like that. And then um, we have a couple of our women mountain bikers that, you know, I know that they're making more than kind of a, of, of an equal tier male athlete just cause they, okay. they just have a, you know, more of a, there's just more of a benefit for the brand. Right. So we definitely have a lot of work to do, but we've been improving and all brands, maybe not all, but most have, have been doing a good job with, with building their rosters equally and uh it's just all good stuff that but again definitely definitely, none of us are done yet like you got to keep moving the needle and moving forward definitely can't rest on our pat ourselves on the back and that's not what i'm doing right now like well we've really made some great improvement well we have but it's uh there's still work to be done
0: definitely man that's good to hear you um Back in the days you were kind of maybe ahead of the trend a little bit. You started a, a little website called sticksandstones.com, uh, which was, you know, a great resource for me and my mates over here in the UK to find out what was going on kind of behind the scenes, I guess, at the at the races at the World Cups. Can you just I for people that aren't familiar with that or aren't old enough, just to kind of explain what you set out to do with that? Well,
1: I think it was late nineties when, uh, you know, the internet, the internet had been around. Um, but it was starting to become something where there was, uh, I think Velo news at the time, dot started to have an online presence. There just wasn't a lot of online media. Um, yeah. and there certainly wasn't a more rough and rough and ready kind of gossip style news. Um, you got your race results, how that race run was for so-and-so and so-and-so. And, but I was just always interested in, in more of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, you know, why was Volvo Cannondale running? Um, you know, I forget at the time, but the whole thing when people would run tires that weren't their tire sponsor. Um, and I felt like the, the audience wanted to know these types of things, and man, it's a bad example, but um, yeah, just all the gossip that goes into to a World Cup event, and so yeah, I just started up. You know, there wasn't WordPress at the time, but I just figured out how to code a, a HTML website and just started making this blog. And uh, yeah, I think that's when I, I got my first digital camera, so I was able to upload some photos on the fly. Um, it's a camera I bought at the Japanese world cup in Arai. Um, so I was able to put photos online sometimes it was, I mean, the files were big and transferring them through dial up and all that stuff was difficult, but it basically was just a a gossip blog and, you know, definitely got me into trouble more times than (laughs) I'd like to mention, but, and probably some of it still haunts me today. But, um, which is silly because it was never, there was never any, you know, uh, trade secrets on there. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know, but, uh, it just was just telling people what's going on in, in, in mountain biking from a, from an insider's perspective. You know, I was a race mechanic at the time, but, you know, talking to all the other mechanics and, and the riders and hearing stories and mostly being respectful of, you know, a story that didn't want to be told, but there mm-hmm. were times when there were people that were really upset. Um, I don't know. There's like, like miles Rockwell. I remember one time in, um, Vars, France world cup. I, I don't, I don't even remember what I said. I think it was after he won, he won the um, world championships and, um, I, I just wrote something on there that pissed him off. And he was, he was ready to beat me up in the pit. And, uh, I think it was Rob Warner. Cause he was his teammate at the time. And Rob was like, telling him to calm down and trying to hold him back. Like there were some incidents like that a few times, not always, but I guess mostly there's a lot of good, I get a lot of good stories of like, man, that was my connection to the races back then yeah. so much. And, so I'll have to take those, those, uh, good proclamations of it versus a couple uh, missteps that were made. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think
0: we're missing some of that from the sport now like that? It, it brings a real personality, I guess, and it's a, and a real interest. And there's a bit of like team rumors stuff flies around and what have you, but it's, I don't, there's nothing that's quite doing what you did back then. Do you think there's still space for
1: it? I, I think so. I mean, I would love to, uh, Again, you have to really scrape the scrape the bottom of social media to get any of those fun little tidbits, whether it's you know the squids on tour, Instagram or team rumors um, that poke fun at ourselves at the sport, you know because at the end of the day we're we're just racing bikes um, and, and and it's fun to be reminded to not take it too seriously. Sometimes there's a time to be serious and then, um, you know, and, and win races and focus and train and all that stuff and testing. But it's also fun to have a little, a little poke of fun at yourself and, and your mates and all that. And I, I definitely think it's needed. But again, it goes back to there's just so much noise out there. Um, and it would somebody take their time to um, put something like that together? for you know, because everything's about a return. Well, can I make yeah. any money off of it? And you know, I certainly wasn't mine was solely a I don't know if passion project is what we want to call it, but um <laughs> I just did it to just pass the time away. And you know, the feedback I was getting was from people that couldn't couldn't go to the races and got to learn a little insight, um that so and so's um you know, went through three frames that weekend. It's the stuff brands didn't want to hear, but, um, I don't know. I definitely think there's a space for it. It's just, is anybody going to do it? But by the same token, you know, there's, um, you know, a big mountain bike website, the biggest mountain bike website that has started to do a few stories that are, you know, what we call TMZ oriented gossip type stuff. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I feel like they get, kind of slammed for it. Um, you know, like, like when they posted Rachel Atherton's pregnant, but a, yeah. a, a month ago or two months ago, whatever it was. And, you know, re- I, reading in some of the comments, people are like, why is this on here? I don't want to, I don't need to know this. And, you know, again, those are just keyboard warriors, but it kind of bums me out. Cause it's like, I think yeah. that's interesting news for, um, for the mountain bike fan, especially know, the, the the greatest of all time is having a baby. That's, that's newsworthy. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that classifies as that, um, but it's still personal life stuff. And, um, I think there's that line where the athletes, you know, don't want a lot of that stuff out there. Um, and I think you get so much of it with social media too, right? Like like my Lucas Shaw is a good example too. He's one of my buddies and rides, rides for our brand and you know, he, he dates Yolanda Neff and then when he's in Switzerland, you know, them two together is hits the, um, the gossip magazines and stuff. And that's just weird. And, but I think if you follow her or follow him, you kind of know these things anyway. Yeah. Um, So maybe that's getting, getting our fill of, of those of an era gone by of yeah of, of yeah, gossip yeah maybe bit.
0: social media sort of replaces it to some extent doesn't it but it's not it's not quite the same yeah sure. and I guess
1: it's, it's it's having a central hub for it because you have to you have to follow all these people um i don't know and if there was a place where again not that everything was gossip related back in the day who's dating who and that kind of thing which I did talk about some of that stuff but yeah Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't say I grew up around BMXers, but I was around a lot of BMX minded people and it's a, it's a real brutally honest shit talking club is, is BMX. And I, I don't know, just all the walls were down in that crew. And I think I brought some of that to the sticks and stones website to just, um, bust balls with everybody including yourself and you know maybe it's probably not even you know we're, we're becoming so politically correct these days too that maybe there's not a, a place for it but i enjoy i enjoy reading that stuff some people don't um i would love reading it if somebody did it and i'm not gonna do it because i get asked all the time <laughs> people are like you need to bring it back <laughs> like i've got- i've got bills to pay now i can't risk it <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you ever wish you'd done it anonymously in the first place
1: yeah absolutely and then i think years later there was a website called the uh, hb cut the course in 1990 was the long name of the website and um you know that, that was a uh ghost ghost writer type vibe you didn't know who who was it who who was who was creating it um and that was fun and they were talking shit and um a lot of people enjoyed it but it was a you know a cult thing and that's probably the best route is to just be secret about it and uh (laughs) i think you know some of those instagram handles that they're kind of inactive now but you know if you're in the know you know who some of these people are behind them but it's fun to have these anonymous people and posting, you know, stuff that, wow, how, how does this person know that? I, I think that stuff's fun stuff, but maybe that's just yeah. me.
0: No, it's good. It's good to have a little bit of that. <laughs> so, I mean, at some point you decided to kind of pull away from the race scene, which must've been a, a tricky decision because it has been a huge part of your life up to that point. You're traveling with your wife, Lee Donovan as well, all the time. So kind of in it together, what, what was it that kind of pulled you away from
1: it? Um, well, I think the first, there's kind of, it kind of happened in phases. Um, <clears throat> you know, I had been Lee's Lee had been on the teams I worked for since, well, since 93, she's, she was on iron horse program. That was her first pro team. That was my first team I worked for. Then she went to the diamondback team in 94, but then we got back together in 95 and we've been dating all this time. Um, So pretty much her whole career, except one year, 94, we were working together. And then when she decided to quit in 2001, which was, you know, the, the, the financial rewards started to to go away and she certainly never did it for the money, but she was being paid very well. And those big deals started to started to dry up for everyone. Mm -hmm. And she was just, it's not worth the risks I'm taking for, for the money that I see in the future. And I'm pretty healthy right now. Um, The sports kind of taken a bit of a nosedive from this Lance effect. And you know what, now's a good time. So she, she uh, planned her retirement 2001, but we were also riding and working for Schwinn, Schwinn Toyota team. And they were owned by this group called Questor and uh, the whole thing imploded and they went bankrupt. So that was a GT program, the Schwinn program. Um, And that was in the summer of 2001. And we were all, you know, we all got the news when we were at the Japan world cup, our team, like my team credit cards didn't work for the hotel. um, And we were all just left high and dry over there. And we were reading news reports like in the newspaper, you know, iconic brand Schwinn files for bankruptcy and GT bicycles. So between our Schwinn program and then the GT program, which was massive, you know, it was the GT powerhouse of that day. Mm -hmm. um, We were all left. no No paychecks. Credit cards weren't working, but we were all being told that we had to um, still promote the brands. If we had any hopes of, of getting any of the lost wages back. And again, whether it was a Lee or Steve Pete on GT, um, all these people were pretty well-paid riders at the time, yeah. you know, big six figure deals. And uh, so we went on throughout the year, like we had to do interviews, still promoting the brand. We couldn't give off any inclination that we were unhappy or um, anything. And that's what lawyers were telling us to do. So, you know, that was the first blow knowing that Lee was retiring and I'm like, okay, well not gonna be traveling with Lee. That kind of sucks. But to top it off, we had this big loss in income. Um, Future was uncertain. So I was going to, I was going to bounce as well. You know, she, she had already had plans. She was going to, she was going to buy this flower shop and just get into the retail business. She eventually got into the fashion business and started her own um, fashion store down the road. But I was, I was ready to leave too. And, you know, we went through uh, some legal stuff to get, to get our money back, um, which everybody did on that program from staff to the writers big long saga. But uh, when, when, when GT got acquired by Pacific cycle, I think it was, they gave me a call. This is now, you know, eight months later. Um, I went back to school I was going back to community college and, um, you know, even I as a mechanic in that era was making really good money. Um, you know, I was, I was just a bike mechanic making hundred grand a year and you're only working Whoa. five, six months out of the year <laughs> and then just chilling the rest of the year, riding mountain bikes. I mean, nice. it was a great lifestyle. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. so I went back to school and then GT called, You know, I knew they got bought out and, um, Hey, we're going to put the, we're going to put a small team back together. It was going to be Brian Lopes and, um, maybe, maybe some couple other guys, a really small program. And, um, you know, I just threw out a number. Well, I got to get paid this much. It was a whole new group. It wasn't any of the old former GT or Schwinn people. It was all new people. Um, so anyways, I, uh, I took that deal to run that program GT, which would have been 2002, 2003, 2004. So a three-year deal, um, it just never, it wasn't as fun as it was in the, in the, in the early days, the nineties, a, because Lee wasn't on the road with me. B, um, you know, the sport had taken a beating through these, um, you know, through bankruptcies through corporate sponsors, leaving the sport. Yeah. Um, I think we even lost some events, you know, we went from eight world cups to six and those kind of things. So it just, you know, the, the, the vacuum just sucked the, not all the fun and excitement out of it, but it's some of it. And, um, so anyways, the 2004 interbike is when I just went to my boss and I made a proposal to change my job description. Like it'll be a little more in house. Um, you know get off the road kind of thing and they weren't yeah. ready for it at this new gt and gt was a struggle that whole time too like we couldn't get bikes made you know i was traveling around the country going to dealers and they got so burned by the bankruptcy that you know they had so much hate for anybody that pulled up in the gt truck and trailer <laughs> It was like get the f out of my store you guys hosed <laughs> me three years ago and it's like no it wasn't wow. me that was a whole nother but it didn't matter. Um, it was just, it was a bad time to be part of that, that program as they were trying to rebuild. And so, um, yeah. And at that time when I tried to change my job role, Lee had got pregnant and, um, that's when, you know, she had started her store and her store was doing phenomenally well, really well. We were making good money. And she was just like, you should just stay, stay, be stay at home dad. And, so that's what I did. I completely, you know, quit the whole bike industry. Um, I didn't go to any races. We had our daughter, Grace in 2005. And, um, yeah, I was just full-time stay at home dad for probably for three years. I was dabbling in some, I I did all kinds of, I, I tried to get into photography. Um, I was always calling Sven Martin up and asking him to show me how to, how the, how these cameras work and i was just another <laughs> another idiot calling sven like how do you do this it looks easy and yeah. uh, but i will say he, he always was super helpful in um nice. showing me the ropes and you know i got a couple little photo gigs but you know i'm just much like aspiring to be john tomac back in the day i wanted to be like the sven martins of the world like Dude, your photos are unbelievable. How do you do it? And I couldn't, I couldn't create imagery like that. And so I don't even want to, I didn't even want to bother. You know, if I can't touch the sun, I don't, I didn't even want to try. So I dabbled with that for a little bit. And, um, and then we did, I started the e-commerce for my wife's store. Um, So basically three years, three, four years, I was completely removed from the bike space um and and lee as well like she stopped riding bikes because she was full bore with her store um and then we had it wasn't a you know a one-day moment but there was a time where we were like we really missed um mountain biking we missed our family right the mountain biking family because we that's all we knew through our through our 20 20s and um we had to get back to it. And so we went in 2008. We went to Whistler for our first time ever. Like that was going to be our our uh, our family trip. And we'd always been told what a sick place it is. And I remember hearing about Whistler, right? Like all of us do. It's amazing. It's unreal. And I was always like, it can't be that rad. <laughs> I mean, I've traveled around the world. I've been everywhere. Can't be that rad. And we went and long story short we've been outside of 2020 covid year we've been to whistler every summer for all of august so for 15 years or whatever that's our So it that's, is that good? Yeah, that's our family vacation and not just yeah. the riding there but the town and um you know the lakes and the hikes and all the fun activities and stuff. So anyways, we got kind of re- reacquainted with mountain biking through that whistler trip. Went there during crankworks and saw all of our old friends, met some new ones. You know, this is when you know a lot of the new talent was coming out. I think that's the first time um I just met a lot of the the new crop of riders that were going there. Yeah. And we'd been following it. Um and I had also started doing some some broadcast work with Freecaster. I did a couple spots with with Rob Orner. He uh he helped get me involved. And, and coming back, I was horrible at it, like the worst commentator of all time. So I'm glad that only <laughs> it must lasted. Have been, must have been fun though working with Rob. Oh my! And you know those freecaster days. You know, wasn't Red Bull TV, which is polished and professional, but the freecaster days. I mean, we were completely hammered the whole time, <laughs> yelling and screaming. It was a gong show, and it showed. um it's pretty uh, loose back then, wasn't oh, it? it was for sure, so loose, but really fun. Um, and yeah, I, I, I honestly I can't even listen back to the. I, I did three World Cups, two or three World Cups, and they're just painful for me to listen to. But um, so I just what's can't... it like sharing a hotel room with him? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole nother, uh that's a whole nother podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I would I would you know dip my feet in and out through, you know, a, a whistler or some of these free caster events. And that's when, you know, I, I missed, a I missed a big part of, of, of being in the, in the bike industry again. And, um, and that brings me back to, you know, so I started working for Intent cycles as their marketing yeah. director. Um, that was like my, my dive back into the industry and which wasn't, which was a pretty easy transition because um, Jeff and Jen, the owners of Intense, we were partners mm-hmm. with them in um, in the Lee and Jen's store, Tangerine that they own. So, longtime friends with Jeff and Jen. Um, Jen and Lee ran that store; that was their store. And then, you know, Jeff and I, as the husbands, we did. You know, Jeff did all the build buildouts, um, all the construction, all the carpentry work. I okay. did all the IT tech um, the e-commerce. Um, so the four of us, you know, it was a kind of a family run business. And so we had that relationship there and, you know, getting back into the bike industry was through Jeff at intense and I'll forever, always be thankful to Jeff for, for that opportunity. But even back in the nineties, you know, he made our race bikes when we were at Mongoose. Um, when he started intense tires, he brought me in to do the um, to run that tire business, which was short lived, but he's given me a lot of great opportunities. And so definitely credit Jeff for getting me back into the business side. And mm-hmm. I definitely, uh, you know, it's, that's the, I, I wish I had done it earlier. Um, you know, got out of the mechanic side of it, you know, way back in the day, but, um, see, I was only an in intense for, I don't even think two years okay. and, then, uh, onto Troy Lee design where I've been ever since. Yeah. What, what is your role at Troy Lee now? Cause it's, it's pretty wide reaching, right? Yeah. The, um, I mean, I started there solely as a, in a sports marketing um, role, which was to, you know, look after the athletes and, and rebuild the program. The program kind of fell apart when, um, you know, it'd been run under Mike Redding, who's a mm-hmm. longtime industry icon, dude. Um, you know, credited with, you know, whether it's a PD or a Bryceland or a Steve Smith. You know, I, there's the TLD and these guys side of it, but it's really you know Mike's relationships uh, that he that he cultivated with with a lot of these up and comers or the or the legends of that era, and so Mike had left. Um, he went to Fox and um, there was like a there was like a eight to 12 month gap where there just wasn't anybody at TLD running the bike side and you know really hurt the program you know TLD lost some critical ground in a critical time and um, so Troy brought me back to kind of reassemble just the the sports marketing side and you know my time at intense as the marketing director you know, Got me out of the comfort zone of, of athletes and racing. And I was, you know, probably more fascinated with the, with the marketing side and talking to your customers and, you know, building that trust with your customers um, through the storytelling of the product and all that. And so I told Troy when I got there, you know, yeah, I'll rebuild the race program, but, you know, what are you doing on the marketing side? And he really, outside of, you know, the D three at the time, full face helmets. Yeah. He was, he started dabbling with some gear, but he just wasn't doing a ton of bike gear. There wasn't any half shell helmets. And I just, I convinced Troy and like, you haven't even, you think you're doing well in the mountain bike space right now? You haven't even scratched the surface. So, you know, I gave him a, a much larger roadmap for the future. Um, you know, and I told him that I go bike revenue could surpass moto revenue within X amount of time. And he didn't believe me. And so that was always the goal was a bigger goal of, of running the bike business um, with our, you know, we have a really small team and uh, yeah, that's just been the focus after we reassembled the athlete program, which we still, you know, we're always building and making it better and stronger. um, But I'd say, about four years ago, when Troy took on a private equity deal, he took on mm-hmm. some investment. Um, new leadership team came in and kind of restructured my role. I mean, it's technically what do we call it? Brand director, um, but I create the product line, um, okay. build the product roadmap, and and responsible for the marketing. You know, the narrative, um, how all the ads look, and communicating with our with our distributors and sales reps, and building the tools so they can, uh, you know, communicate the gear to the end user, to the dealers, et cetera. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty big role. And I think in other companies there's, there's more people doing it. Um, And again, we have a really small team, you know, I mean, we've got one, we have one developer, Chad. Um, He's a, he handles the helmet development for bike and moto. So he's, he's, he's pretty slammed. Um, He's also doing protection. You know, we're, we're building the team right now, you know, adding designers and developers, but it's still a pretty, pretty small um, crew across the board in product, in marketing, and sales. And I mean, everybody's is, is literally flat out constantly, um, like everybody in the industry, especially these days with the, with the bike. Yeah. It's just full gas, trying to get product. Um, <laughs> And it's been challenging, that's for sure. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Is, is marketing more complex
0: these days than when you first kind of entered that space? Because there's a lot of places you can spend your marketing dollars these days. It's not just athletes and print magazines, is it? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And, uh,
1: you know, it takes, it, you really got to analyze what the return is and, what, and, and know what you're looking for as a brand. <clears throat> you know, where are trying to uplift your message, your image in what areas? Cause like you said, there's just so many areas, um, to look into and, um, it's, it's definitely harder. There's no question, question about it. And, um, I don't even think there is. And there's so many, uh, people that claim to be experts in, 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 the, in all these certain categories and, I just don't know. I don't know if that exists because I've, you know, whether it's consultants or experts in the field, you get, you get filled with, with data to make an informed decision, but it's still, it's still a, it's still a lot of unknowns. That's for sure. And it's, yeah, yeah, I, I won't lie and say it's easy or, um, And I think this, this moment now has been, I think everybody's chance to experiment. If you have the budget to experiment, um, and try new things because the demand is there right now, regardless. Mm -hmm. Um, you're probably, whether you're making chain rings, tires or helmets and jerseys, the demand is there. You're probably going to sell through your product. Um, And so some, you know, there's a lot of people in in our field that are like, we're not even doing anything this year. We're not doing any ads, like stuff's going to sell anyway. And I think that's a crazy, I think now's the time to, to put your foot on the gas, to build those brand impressions. And, um, yeah, but I think now's the time to experiment and try new things because if you screw up, you're probably still going to get through the, the product. Um, Yeah. And I'm not talking, you know, a bad screw up, like um, some type of uh, wrong wording with, with not being inclusive or something. Like <laughs> I'm just talking like putting it in the wrong channel or something. Mm. Uh, it, it, now's a good time for experimentation. And that's what, you know, talking to our crew is, you know, like with the A3 never take it off videos was a... Uh, you know, I wanted to just try something different for the Troy Lee Designs brand. Many brands have, have, have you know, tried advertising like that. We haven't. You know, ours has always been race-driven. And uh, yeah, granted, we used athletes in these ads, but just a different, more fun approach because, because we can right now. See how that resonates with people. See if it hooks with them. Um, and the response has been good. So, like... I'm kind of excited to know that, you know, we could maybe go down this road again of, of, uh, using our athletes. Cause that's our, um, that's one of our powerful marketing tools, but use them in a more creative and fun way. So, yeah,
0: nice. Yeah. It's been an interesting campaign to watch with all the little videos of, uh, of your athletes doing well <laughs> normal things. I want to say, but not really normal things in, uh, while still wearing the helmet. So yeah, it's been an, been a nice little chuckle every now and again when there there's a new one of those edits released it's yeah it's just fresh i guess it's different
1: yeah and it's a you know it was definitely challenging with covid you know the original concept i had was you know which was was born out of when we started early testing the helmet it's going to sound super cheesy but people were getting in their cars after riding and forgetting to take the helmet off and those kind of scenarios and that just you know i was like man why don't we just that's the marketing message is it's so comfortable you'll never take it off and so the bigger campaign idea when i reached out to cut media which you know again like the tomac analogy the sven analogy working with cut media and clay you know i've always wanted to work with clay porter and he did our d4 video last year but i've always wanted to work with cut media i love their work Um, I know Stu a little bit from the race days and, um, so reaching out to them and, and I mean, that whole project with all of the hurdles and struggles with COVID and travel, they just made everything so unbelievably easy and fun. You know, everything was about, um, you know, the funner side of, of why we do this stuff. And, uh, it, it just, it, it couldn't have gone better, especially, you know, doing it. I, I couldn't go anywhere, but we had a bigger idea of that, of that campaign, you know, to do, a you know, have more athletes involved, more of our women on the program. We eventually only were able to get Valley in it. And even that was between her breaking her, her ankle at world champ because oh, yeah. we were supposed to start, shooting it back then and then the covid cases ramped up um she couldn't get into the uk uh, it was just constant challenge and so we ended up we ended up shooting that at her um at her parents um bed and breakfast um uh, okay so kind of kind of like a home <laughs> home vibe and you know out of respect to her because you know, a lot of these videos were you know these ambassador types outside of brendan he's still. We'll still call him a racer. Um, I don't want to do justice to, to Valley's current life. She is a professional athlete. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of show, you know, you're still, you're still getting ready for your training day. Um, I didn't want to have her just, you know, full, full gas swimming in pools and <laughs> and, and spa treatments. But, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, it was, it was a challenge. And, but again, I don't think it was too risky to do because now's the moment to um to try new stuff i think you know even that specialized levo spot that came out a couple of week a week ago or whatever that's just weird but why not you know and it got people talking and do you think
0: they're trying to advertise that to us though or to people that are maybe outside of the world of mountain biking it feels like it maybe wasn't targeted at us no, Oh for sure
1: yeah yeah no absolutely and that's i think you know, those are conversations we're having internally and I'm sure every other business is, is how do we, how do we attract eyes and ears of these people that are new to the sport or the people that are just checking it out on the sidelines and are interested in it? Because I think a lot of us have been so speaking to us all the time, using the lingo, um, assuming they know who these athletes are and all that type of spin and, you know the challenge is how do we speak to a bigger audience you know um so yeah i totally agree with that assessment and i think um it's just speaking more mainstream because the sport has we've attracted so many new customers in the last year from covid it's keeping them engaged um keeping them excited by your brand but also like you said man getting getting the um people that are completely foreign to the mountain bike um culture that we know i think yeah yeah definitely
0: talking about the athlete side of things do you think it's getting harder for athletes to get deals not necessarily just like a gear deal with you guys but getting on deals in general with teams because brands are i guess their eyes have been open to other marketing opportunities be that kind of influencers, youtubers all this sort of stuff there's like there's more pots that you can put money into and and we've seen some pretty high caliber athletes not getting deals or certainly not getting the sort of deals you'd expect to see them on do you think it's that that landscape is changing and do you think it's a threat potential threat to racing
1: yeah i i think so sadly um and i think it's I think we are left to, again, and I could be totally wrong, but just two, two dudes talking about what what their thoughts are, you know. So, um, and it, it, I think we're reliant on the decision makers at brands to still be fans of, and yeah. if we're speaking solely to downhill racing, to be fans of downhill racing, and you know, maybe put ROI and and all that aside for for what we think is the greatest sport in mountain bike downhill racing and you know bean counters of the world they don't want it they don't want to hear what i just said you know the love and the passion and all that stuff there has to be a return on it and you know in our case there is a return whether nobody's watching it or not um it's that development and that insight from the athletes, they, they put your equipment through um, mm. just greater rigors than, than the common rider. And the same goes for, for the bicycles too, you know, um, whether it's a Loic Bruni and what he can do to a bike and, and, and help advance the bike um, or Brendan, you know, Brendan, I think is Fairclough is a great example of how, one rider has turned around uh, a bicycle for the better. I mean, the Scott bike mm-hmm. before he came around well, it was terrible and he kept pushing them and pushing them. And now it's a really good bike and they would not have done that um, without his help and insight and knowledge. And it does trickle down into the trail bikes and just insight. You learn not specifically to that discipline, but to other genres of, of mountain biking in general. And that goes for us too, whether it's a glove or a helmet, you know, what we learn on the racetrack, there are tangible, um, parallels to, to, to the, to the everyday product. And that goes for bikes and tires and grips and handlebars and seats and everything. So, um, that development side ROI is real, no matter, Mm -hmm. no matter what the views are on Red Bull TV or any of that. but that, you know, those are the measurement sticks that we all look at. And every year I need, I need to see those Red Bull TV numbers, you know, to, I guess, personally, you know, for our brand to help assess, you know, is the investment worth it? Are are the eyeballs there? Um, But then you also have to have the right athletes too. And it's a, you know, if you're lucky enough to have an athlete that, offers you tremendous feedback on product and is on the podiums. I mean, that's, that's the Holy grail. That's the unicorn. Um, then there are some that are solely race horses, podium. You only have them for the podium. They're not offering yeah. you much in the way of tangible product development. They may not even be great for your brand, but they're winning. Um, mm-hmm there's that too. But if you can get both, that's what we're all, that's what we all strive for. But back to your original question. I mean, absolutely. There's a, you know, every brand's different on what they're looking for in an athlete. Um, And people that run teams have a, I think a different perspective from what the brands are looking for. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're kind of unique too, where, you know, the bulk of our, you know, we do have, you know, some full on programs that we work with, like the Dorval team, where we're, we sponsor them for helmets and protection. And, but then we have these, you know, um, and the rock shocks program that we're, we're the entire team sponsor head to toe. Um, but then singular riders like Aluka Shaw, Brendan Faircloth who are on teams, but wear our gear, um, and that's, you know, back to the beauty of mountain biking, I think also, um, having these unique personalities um, tied to brands that resonate with them and all that is a, is a good thing too. And that's, you know, it's kind of unheard of from other sports, but there's just so much to get involved with from an athlete perspective. It's, it's just gotten harder, you know? Um, again, mentioning Brendan Fairclough, he's somebody through COVID, um, I wouldn't say reinvented himself cuz he's already he's he's always done other media whether it's his social mm-hmm. channel but he's really starting to build up his YouTube channel put out some fun content to just get people excited about bikes um and there's a lot of people doing that um but you know he's somebody that we look to like man good job for for not just you know staying asleep through covid <laughs> um valley is another example of a rider who is is trying to put content out there and i don't think any of these riders love doing it they know it's you know part of the part of the game i think and uh i don't want to put words in anybody's mouth i don't think anybody hates doing it but it's it's not like the old days when your sole job was training showing up at the track maybe do the autograph session was your, your big extracurricular activity. Um, yeah. but you were a racehorse. Yeah. There was a lot of partying. I mean, I mean the, the drinking escapades in the nineties were all time, but you didn't have all this other crap you got to do on, on social yeah. and your YouTube channel. And man, there's so much work. Um, Putting as you as, as, of, as you know, you know, just just with a the podcast, there's a lot of things that people don't see to to make it all happen, and yeah, it's it's a it's a lot of work, and then you got to go train. Um, on top of that, and eat right, and it, it, it's a challenging challenging time, but you know, it's definitely rewarding for them for sure. Yeah,
0: and have you have you changed kind of what you? ask for from your athletes like whether it's contractually or otherwise like do you have different requirements
1: i think we're pretty we are pretty lenient with what uh what we ask for i mean yeah we have contracts and the contracts lay out some guidelines i think we rarely ever hold anybody to it um, uh-huh. you know it goes back to to like our groms, like our kid athletes, the little 12 year old groms that we sponsor. We don't do contracts with them. And the parents are always, they want the contract. They want to make it official. And, and what do you need from from little Susie and little Johnny? And, you know, cause they're wondering what kind of social media do they have to put out? What tags and we're, our message is always just have fun on your bike, promote a good time, don't be a douchebag. Like, just be nice to other kids. Get other kids into it, you know? Spread the stoke of, of mountain biking. Um, so we really don't... So, you know, I roll it back to the start for just our little Grom amateur kids. Um, and I'm not saying it's the same for for the elite pros on the program, but we're just not up their ass about, you know, what to do. And in most cases probably all cases we're one of their smaller sponsors, you know, financially. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's always, we're always understanding of their other commitments, you know, their bigger commitments, um, as well. And, uh, I think on our part, it's, you know, when we do a product launch, post some of that stuff on social, um, I just be a good person. I mean, it sounds super simple. Um, but I'd like to think that any of our athletes on the roster, I, I think behind closed doors or even on a, on a podcast would say that we don't really hold their feet to the fire on much. We don't ask for much, but that's also by way of the the partnerships that we build are with athletes that we kind of know. Um, we know what we're getting and we partner up yeah. with them for a reason and uh, uh-huh. I mean, heck, I mean, a lot of these riders have been with us for a long time, but still always signing new, you know, like Eric Fedco, freestyle, free ride mountain biker. Um, he's kind of our latest signing, which was just 2020. Um, and he had some, you know, even with a couple of those crank works that went off, he got some podiums and, you know, that was exciting. So he's our new, our latest, newest um, kid in that genre. Um but, you know, he, he's even, you know, he'll send us emails. Hey, is it okay if I wear a different T-shirt than a Troy Lee shirt? When I'm, when I'm, and it's cool that he asks those questions. And, yeah, yeah. again, our thing is, is about the gear, first and foremost, you know, when you're in competition to have the helmet, the gloves, the protection, all that stuff. But if you're going to go hit the dirt jumps and you're not going to wear our shirt, it's not the end of the world kind of thing. Um, and I... I think that's by design, you know, it's still, um, you know, Troy Lee designs is founded by a guy named Troy Lee, who's still around and still racing and riding and still going to work and driving us crazy. And, um, (laughs) and you know, his son, Max works, works with us now. He works in the moto department. He, he handles the gear for the moto team. Um, so it's, there's still a, a family family run business entrepreneurial spirit with the brand yeah. that we try to, I guess um, relay to the to the riders that it's nice. we're not as big corporate machine and so that's the long answer of do we have requirements? For the rider?
0: Yeah, Let, let's talk a bit about downhill racing as it is today because you alluded to it earlier and I, I agree it feels like it's going through a kind of a growth phase an improvement phase like things feel like they're going in a really positive direction with it right the coverage is really good we've got a really really strong field in both the men's and the women's side of the sport think we're you think we're in a pretty good place with it I,
1: yeah, I definitely think so and i think i think we were on a good trajectory you know before covid hit and it just there's times i feel like oh it's so frustrating because we we're we had great momentum especially coming off of that final round snowshoe 2019 yeah. i went there i mean the vibe was just all time um the coverage if even if you weren't there and watching the that event i mean that was the best world cup final in i won't say ever but in a long time and so we all left we all left there like oh man 2020 <laughs> is going to be the one and then 2020 happened and and it just took the wind out of the sails of, of, of the world cup. Uh, yeah. For the, for the brands, but I mean, who cares about the brands really. It's, it's these athletes that built their life around this sport and they had to reinvent themselves and all that stuff we all know about. Um, and then we eventually had this, you know, shorter world cup and it was still exciting and cool, but it just feels like it was lacking the impact I, I think world championships was had that energy like, mm-hmm. oh my god, this is amazing by way of the weather that was going on and some of those dramatic moments, valley breaking her ankle the morning of the race as the fastest qualifier in her first year pro, like so many unbelievable moments were happening. So I think worlds was great um, that that helped me as a fan, just speaking from a fan's perspective like, Okay, there we go. That's some of that where we left off from snowshoe, like just drama. This is why we love this sport. And um, and we got some of that in the World Cup, but, you know, that format. Um, and I didn't go to any of those events, but, you know, not having the fans at those events, which is part of the magic of of mm-hmm. the sport. You know, I think I saw G Atherton post, you know, his – I don't know if disappointment is a word, but it seemed like he was bummed that they're not going to have spectators at Fort William, and I think he he asked his 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 readers, you know, what do you think? And I think it's a bummer. That's the magic of yeah, probably of more than any of the World Cups. I mean, the Fort William crowd for what they go through to get there—it's a long <laughs> haul. Um, and be there, yeah, and be there. I mean, it's one of my favorite. World Cups to go to and to not have the fans there is, is, is a blow. Um, I was talking about it with my wife Lee the other day and man, that's such a bummer. They should just postpone it until they can have fans. And, you know, she, she always has the other perspective for me, which is great, but she always kind of cracked and crumbled from the fans, you know, having the, the big crowds was, was a lot for her to, to digest um and Mm -hmm. some athletes feed on it and that's their fuel and then there's some that it just it just creates too many nerves and would just prefer to get in their zone of their race run and and do their thing on the track without the 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 fans so that you know that was interesting and i kind of remember her being like that back in the day like the bigger the crowds the more nervous she would get and if she there are those that can channel that nervous energy into superior performance and those that would crack. And sometimes she would crack and sometimes she wouldn't, but so that was another perspective. Cause I just saw that as such a downfall bummer, like to not have fans at Fort yeah. William. And she's like, well, I think the riders would like it. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Um, Interesting. So, I mean, I just feel like we were on this great upswing and COVID took the wind out of the sails and then even 21 here with Maribor being postponed. Sounds like Fort William, maybe touch and go. Um, it just, it sucks in general, of course. Right. Yeah. But it does suck for the sport. Cause I feel like it's, we don't have, we don't have time to, to lose the momentum because I'm just never, I guess I'm never confident that the industry itself will continue to support it i think Uh i think the bean counters of the bike industry will just go you know what we sell 80 downhill bikes a year why are we spending a million dollars on this program same goes for us i mean our d4 helmet our flagship full face helmet it's that d series helmet that put us on the map you know we don't sell a lot of them I mean, we sell way more of our trail helmets by revenue and certainly by quantity. Um, But we do it because, you know, we we placed a a flag in the ground two decades ago that we were the leader in that space. And we always have to be the leader in that space and make the most bitch and full face helmet that protects you. That looks rad and all that. But we don't sell a lot of them. Um, and much like a carbon downhill frame, I mean, to make the molds for a carbon helmet and the development and the testing it's expensive. So, but we do it because we love it. And, um, I know it's a lot harder on the bike side to make downhill bikes and develop them and test them and send the team on the road and all that stuff. And you just hope that, uh, you just hope that that carries on. That's, that's what we're, we're left to. And, I guess it's, you know, similar to formula one is it's next level spending and they have people that their job is to bring in revenue to fund the program. Yeah. And we struggle with that. You know, it's always the bike brands that are spending the money. Um, so we need some, we need, if there's any formula one investment type people, we need help getting, (laughs) getting these teams funded so we can keep going. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Well,
0: we've seen a bit more kind of external funding coming in. It was good to see Mercedes Benz come back to the World Cup. Um, and at least we got some racing last year. I don't think it gathered the momentum of a full season, but what we did have was good and it was it was pretty good to see Mr. Minar take another win, wasn't it?
1: Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Um yeah, I think it, that Mercedes deal, again, may it, it, uh, like I was talking about earlier, maybe it helps um percolate some ideas with other um, non-endemic brands to get involved with the sport. And if, man, we can't get involved with sponsoring the series, what if we, what if we're the title sponsor of one of these programs? Um, that's the, the dream and the goal. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, the racing was exciting. We, you know, fans like yourself and everybody out there, we tuned in, we watched those, we, we did our usual You know, for us here in America, it's getting up at 4.15 in the morning and watching the first runs, and you just, that was exciting. It just, it happened in such a small window of time, and it was over so quick. You're like, oh, I want it to go on forever. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and then to, yeah, Greg, to, I I think what was interesting about that tight four-pack of racing was, was to see the variety of, of speed and the variety of speed at the same venue. Um, yeah. And, you know, and a, and a cool new twist to racing and yeah. I mean, as a fan, you watch somebody like Greg do what he does. Cause he is a master tactician. He knows all the elements of putting a race run together and he may not yeah. be Whatever you want to throw out there may not be the fittest, the whatever is on the circuit, but he knows the recipe for the whole day, right? From getting up in the morning and all the, you know, back to experience. Um, experience pays for him. And so, you know, it's like Aaron Gwynn, for example, and seeing him struggle the last couple seasons. And some would, you know, his results, some may say, wow, that's struggling Some top tens and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we're coming off of watching what he used to do, which is just mind blowing victories and the look in his eye. You just never saw a look in somebody's eye like that. Um, the attack on the course and, um, you know you hear people talking about you know is he ever going to be back is he ever going to be back well uh, yeah he he of course has the ability um you know once he gets comfortable with his bikes and when he really wants it you know and i think he's at the end of his his uh three-year deal and Uh he's always turned the gas on at the end of a three-year deal (laughs) so yeah yeah um I don't know, I think those glimmers of brilliance through a Greg Menar because this sport downhill racing is way too friggin' gnarly for somebody of his age to be still be doing what he's doing. Um it's it it's incredible. And I mean Petey Petey kinda did it before him. I think those guys I don't know, there's something about Santa Cruz bikes that keeps the keeps the older guys going fast because um they just, they went way past what I think their the normal career would be. Um, for sure. But yeah, it's exciting to, to watch from, from a Greg to like a Jamie Edmondson, newer, younger, lesser experienced kid having these great, um, great races is that's the stuff that was awesome to see. We just wanted more of it. Right. Like sure. I, I need, I need four yeah. more of those, not just four, but <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. Fingers crossed for this year, but
0: yeah. Who's, who's your money on if you had to put it somewhere in the men's and the women's field, like it's so hard to call, but.
1: Well, yeah, I'm the, all the, uh, all the, um, fantasy pools and stuff. Um, fantasy teams. I always do horrible at them. I'm the worst. <laughs> picking <up>. But, uh, <laughs> dude, I don't know. I, of course I, you know, I'm excited to see Valley get back, get back in the mix. You know, her, that, that ankle injury, it's taken her, I think longer than she thought to get, to get back to, you know, full dexterity with it and strength and, you know, where she was when she got hurt, was just, you know, the best she was riding from skill wise, speed wise, trying gnarly stuff like that jump. Um, and I think that set her back <clears throat> further than she thought. Um, but man, is she working hard to get back? Um, I think with Rachel being out for this, you know, this season is, is uh, it, you know, the women's racing is just has become so competitive. I, I don't I think it always has been, but I, I, think you're just reminded by the close battles in the last two or three years. And, yeah. um, you know, to, to back when Tani was getting, finding the, the winning recipe for her, because we, you know, as long as she had been around, like we sponsored when I was at intense. We sponsored her when she was 12 year old, little, uh, I forget the bike park. She was riding that in Europe, but we were making her custom blue intense bikes back in the day. And you know, she was one of those upcoming phenoms. And then a couple of years ago, when she started finding that recipe um, you know, she's another one gets her center back a little bit, but she's back. So, I mean, the women's field exciting. And then on the men's side, it's just, I mean, it's the usual suspects. I, I don't know if there's, um, I don't know if there's any uh I can't even think of any of the newbies that could you know squeak into the podium. It always takes me like that first race to get reacquainted with everything right like yeah. I just remember where everybody that's the perils of being a downhill fan is there's such massive gaps be- <laughs> between the races yeah, sure. we kind of like I need a refresher course and like Uh, and so it's up to going back to you know looking at the world cup finals video or something that kind of like oh yeah that dude got eighth he could be a threat kind of stuff and i've been you know i'm removed from you know on the sports marketing side we we uh we're reliant on the teams we work with to pick the riders that's their job um Mm -hmm. and then all of our contracts were um were already dialed so i didn't have to like do my homework and and uh dig around like usual so but yeah just excited for it that's what uh yeah i don't know what i would do without downhill racing i mean i would have to put it into something some other i don't watch moto gp but i'd probably have to start watching that to get my fill of (laughs) gnarly gnarly uh two-wheel action nice one well, we're getting uh, we're getting close to the end of
0: our time. But we've got our final four questions that you'll probably be familiar with if you've listened to a few of these. But we'll hit those up. The first one: If our listeners had 150 pounds, which is about 200 US dollars at the moment, to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on?
1: Oh man. I, I, I Whenever you ask this question, I'm like, what would I say? And then somebody <laughs> says something super interesting and I, a comfortable helmet. You got to have, I mean, <laughs> and I'm not even going to insert brand stuff. This is just try different helmets on that fit you because I uh-huh. mean, you're putting that thing on your head, especially if it's trail riding. I mean, you're going to go, yeah. you're going to wear it a lot. And if it is annoying or uncomfortable, you know, no matter what the, the test results or the marketing tells you um, it's just, it's got to fit you and everybody's heads are different and there's so many brands out there and, but it's critical. I mean, and co- you know, comfort across the board, your hands with your gloves, your Jersey, your saddle on your bike, your grips. Um, but I know for me, like my head is really finicky and, and I have to, I can't have any conflict with the sunglasses and I don't know if everybody's that crazy about it, but I think it's really important to find a helmet that is comfortable and fits you. Yeah,
0: Sweet. All right. Second question. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself, age 16, what advice would you give him? (laughs)
1: Um, Um, when this app called Instagram comes out, don't get it on your phone. <laughs> Stay away from it.
0: Pretty addictive, huh?
1: It's e- it's either addictive or we'll get you in hot water at some point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Stay well away from all social media. Yeah. That's probably a pretty good piece of advice that we're all going to wish we'd taken at some point in our lives for sure. Yeah, <laughs> Nice one. Third question, if you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? Oh, man.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I always try, I always try, this is going to sound super silly, but whenever I ride... I try to do some move like Semina does and I'm old has been never was mountain biker, but I try in some capacity, some sort of a nose bonk drift my rear wheel the way he does move yes. my body the certain way he does. And it never, I never, I, I mean, I don't video myself, so I don't know, but I kind of feel like, Oh, that wasn't even close or oh maybe I got close. And there's times I'm like, I got to go ride with him and have him show me some of these moves, but I think it'll just be a complete embarrassment or frustration because <laughs> I mean, he's the, he is the, he's the most stylish b- bike rider of all time. And so I think I would like him to show me a few of those tricks, but it could go horribly wrong, but yeah. I'm, I'm sticking, fun, I'm mate. sticking with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Final question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you?
1: Oh man. I think walking our dog, like just getting, cruising the neighborhood, saying hi to the neighbors. We'll get our dog outside. Um, our daughter doesn't always go with Lee and I when we walk the dog, but I don't know. That's just our, I that sounds like super old people, but we live in, no, it's we, good we, we, to get out. Yeah, we live in a pretty cool neighborhood, like I said I live in Santa Ana and it's, you know, we're right next door to hell basically. Like gang violence, the ghetto, it's wow. it's savage, but our neighborhood is on the outskirts um and it's all, you know, older historical homes. There's mm-hmm. a lot of pride in the in the in the people's homes in the neighborhood and It's not your typical, I think what people think of the California cookie cutter neighborhood with track homes Mm -hmm. where everybody pulls their car into the garage and shuts the garage and that's that. Our neighborhood's really different. And so getting out every day helps us from a mental space of being happy with our home because we want to move a lot because we don't love it here. Um, Being mountain bike minded and seeing all these videos of these amazing places and having traveled to these amazing places, we want to live there in that culture. And I think that just that simple walk in the dog every day helps remind us like, okay, maybe the trails aren't sick. Yeah. Maybe there was a shooting eight blocks away, but our neighborhood is pretty sweet. Um, and the neighbors, you know, the people, just a variety of people, friendly outside, watering their lawn, waving, have a chat, um, that's just, that's a good reminder of, you know what, it's, it's pretty good here. So that's nice. what we got to, we got to do every day.
0: Sweet. That's a nice place to end it, man. It's been super interesting chatting here some of your thoughts on where we're at as a bike industry and where downhill racing's at and yeah, picking your brains on a few things. So thanks. Thanks for your time, man. It's been really cool. Where can people find out a bit more about you or about Troy Lee designs if they, if they want to?
1: Um a is uh, our main brand website. We just launched in the EU. Um, so we have a truly And then uh, myself is, I, I think I'm the real stick man on Instagram and I don't have a private account, even though I should, <laughs> because I'm always getting told I'm, you know, too outspoken there. You need to, you need to tone it down, but it is what it is. I am who I am. Yeah, so. keep it
0: real. Yeah. I'll put uh, I'll put some links in the show notes. So people can find all that stuff. Sweet. But yeah, thanks for your time. I've I've really enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, hopefully we get to meet in person at some point when all this is blown over, and maybe share some beers and watch some racing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I just got to say that, like I told you before, wasn't blowing smoke up your butt, but the show is. I love having it in our in our bike community. Um, all the different voices you, you've had on here. It's really great to to make these digital connections and hear these stories from the variety of people you do. And I, man, I know it's got to be a lot of work. So I guess on behalf of all mountain bike fans, it's a big thanks for, for what you do. And I, like I said, being on the show was like super cool because I am such a fan. So <laughs> anyways, really appreciate it
0: thank you man that means a lot yeah it is a lot of work but it's well worth it i get i get a lot of great feedback and just yeah hearing people get excited about riding as a result of listening that's enough for me so Sick. yeah it's all good right on man nice one cool have a good rest of the day and yeah thanks for your time cheers you too All right, that's it for this episode with Craig. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. Thanks to freewheel.co.uk for supporting this episode. If you want the convenience of shopping online, but you still want to support your local bike shops, then Freewheel is the place to do it. You can get 15% off your first order by heading to freewheel.co.uk now and signing up to their mailing list. This is a UK-only thing, I'm afraid, so apologies to my listeners elsewhere in the world. Also, thanks to We Are One Composites. If you're looking for top quality carbon wheels, then We Are One is the place to go. As a downtime listener, you can get 15% off rim only products until the end of April using the code WE Supply 2021 at the checkout on We One Composites.com. That's WE Supply, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number 2021. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you fancy representing the show, then you can get your hands on our brand new Spring Summer 2021 merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com with all the proceeds going to help improve the show. Please keep on spreading the word about the podcast. Tell your rider mates and share the episodes on your social media. It makes a massive difference and it really helps me keep this thing going. If you've got a couple of minutes, then a review on iTunes is super helpful too. Okay, there's going to be another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride.